Hello, and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown. Today is Wednesday, August the 10th, and it is National Be Lazy Day. So if you're out there doing work, just stop it. It's it's time to be lazy. Uh, thankfully, though, we're not lazy here at the Rundown because we have a lot of great news stories coming up. And uh, joining me this week is a good friend of mine and about to be lazy for the next couple of weeks, uh, Mr. Max Mortiaro. Max, thanks for jumping on right before you take your holiday. Thank you. Well, we're really excited to uh, to cover some of the news stories that have been coming out this week. Uh, we have a big news story coming up in our closer look uh, around Black Hat. But before we get there, uh, we're going to start off our news today with some good old-fashioned tiff between a couple of companies. Uh, Min.io, who you may recall we've covered in the past in the rundown here recently, uh, publicly accused Nutanix of lying about no longer using Min.io code in their platform. Now, curiously, all of this information came by way of a blog post from the Min.io CFO, Garima Kapoor. After Nutanix apologized for the inadvertent code, not missing it. Now, that's their words. That's why I use the quotey fingers. Uh, Kapoor then published another blog post in which she completely took them to task for not doing a better job of completely removing the binary that was present in the Nutanix objects code. Um, they were notified back in December of 2019 that this was present and uh, being used against the wishes of Min.io. Uh, to that point, Min.io has completely revoked their rights to use the binary and revoked all licenses thereof and says you need to get rid of it now. Um, Max, <laughs> what's going on here? <laughs> all right, I'm going to try to explain that very simply and shortly. So basically, uh, uh, Nutanix has uh, a suite of uh, storage product solutions, one of which is uh, Nutanix Objects, which provides object storage. As you know, Minio has a very, very strong uh, value proposition with their software on object storage. What happens is that Nutanix kind of used the open source Minio solution, but didn't apparently, and based on the Minio blog, didn't uh, kind of acknowledge the license, quote them, whatever, mention them, and they kind of wrapped the Minio code around something. So when they were running the code according to the to the samples provided by Garima, it was returning something like Nutanix, but the, the executable, the binary was the same, right? So, well, you know, uh, if you're notified and you don't take action in three years, that's kind of weird, uh, especially because uh, the Nutanix solution is sold to enterprise customers, which expect, you know, things to be in order. Uh, the solution was also rated by several analyst companies, including uh, Gigaom, for which I'm writing reports and also evaluating Nutanix. So, it's not a really uh, good sign. So the, the thing now is what happens next, right? And if Nutanix has to remove the code and stop using it, then they need to find a workaround for their solution to continue delivering what it does. And considering that Minio is very uh, highly you know, performant, uh, it, it comes down to what kind of components are there, whether they're critical or not to the solution. So we're not going to go there, but uh, it will eventually have some impact for Nutanix customers. And with that, we're going to switch to a, to a different topic now. So, you know, Tom, the, the SASE and the SSE market is heating up once more. Netscope announced last week that they have acquired startup Infiot for an undisclosed amount back in May. And the deal will bring technology of Infiot into the Netscope borderless one offering. Netscope has focused on the SSE side uh, of the market and also acquired Zero Trust company Woodcloud back in June. So, Tom, what's the plan here for Netscope? 
Netscope originally started off as a CASB vendor, a cloud access security broker, and that's a key component of SASE and SSE. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the difference between SASE and SSE, you should totally go check out my Conversations video series over on our YouTube channel if you're not already there, uh, because I kind of break it down. Spoiler alert, SSE is SASE without the access. So what did Netscope buy? Well, they bought the access. That's right. Um, Infiat is essentially a bunch of uh, people that used to be at Velo Cloud who kind of left and started their own company. And uh, back in 2020, I actually talked to Parag Thakur, who's the head of uh, product there. And he uh, gave me a rundown of what they were doing. And effectively, they created this really, really small access edge device to provide uh, SASE connectivity to a bunch of different devices. Like how small is it? It's like the size of an iPhone. So we're not talking about anything in, uh, huge. So fast forward, Netscope is wanting to kind of be a bigger player in the market and they needed something to be able to provide this. Um, well, they're calling it borderless, but let's be fair. If there's a device out there, there's some kind of a border. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to get a leap on where the market is headed. And when you parlay that into what they're doing with Woot Cloud, it, it's pretty apparent that what they're actually trying to do is get into the zero trust market. And I think that there's a lot of value there for a company like Netscope with the acquisition of, of Infiat to get there because you still need some sort of an edge device to provide some of that demarcation point. Um, one of the things that I keep hearing is, um, you know, this idea that SASE and SSE can protect you in mm, hostile may not be the right word, but definitely challenging security environments like coffee shops. Okay, well, that makes sense, except where are you going to run the services? Like that's, to me, that's the hardest part is, am I going to run an agent on my device? Am I going to force people to authenticate through some kind of a VPN connection? Well, with this tiny little thing from Infiat, it actually goes away because now that device, which could be powered by battery, it could be powered by, you know, um, some other things. I just plug it in, connect my laptop to it at the coffee shop. And now all of a sudden I'm connected through a secure gateway wherever I want to go. I don't have to worry about it anymore. And that's valuable to a company like Netscope because they can kind of distribute these things to people and sell them in 10 or 20 or 50 packs and, and ramp that up. And of course, because they all come with a subscription to the SASE and SSC services to provide zero trust network access, well, you get a lot of recurring revenue there. So I think that this is a good pickup. And while the terms of the deal weren't disclosed, I mean, it's pretty apparent what's going to happen because they've already folded the sales and engineering organizations into Netscope uh, over the last couple of months. So I think that this is basically going to be Infiat disappearing as an entity and becoming a part of this. But congratulations to Barag Thakur and all the other folks at Infiat that I've talked to. Um, this seems like a pretty good exit. Um, I think it's going to be uh, an interesting ride going forward as we kind of shift the the landscape from SD-WAN and SASE to this SSE kind of product line. Well, one company that's not having a good week would be our friends over at NVIDIA because they released their Q2 results. Um, they took a pretty big inventory markdown, like $1.32 billion. That, that's kind of big. Uh, the revenue for the company was down across the board, especially in the gaming division. However, the data center group was up 1% year over year, which was one of the few that actually made a profit. Um, the inventory markdown is related to that thing that NVIDIA does that isn't the data center, you know, GPUs. Why would GPUs be down? Hmm, let's see here. The PC build sales market is kind of going down 
people don't need or want those anymore. And they're definitely not willing to pay $1,500 plus for a GPU. Why are GPU prices so high? Oh, that's right. Cryptocurrency mining. Guess what else is on the way down? Cryptocurrency mining. So NVIDIA has all of these cards that are sitting around that they can't get rid of. So they have to mark them down on their inventory because nobody wants to buy them for the inflated prices. And that's where we're at. Max, if you were NVIDIA, would you be worried about this quarter? Well, if I was NVIDIA and if I was any semiconductor related company, I think that uh, looking at the global geopolitical situation, I think uh, that will be the, the rundown in terms of, you know, PC sales and cryptocurrency would be the least of my concerns looking at the tensions we have in the Taiwan Strait, right? Uh, considering that Taiwan is a major semiconductor production hub, uh, I mean, the, the numbers, of course, that we're seeing here from NVIDIA are less than, you know, uh, encouraging for them uh, because of what you mentioned, you know, the uh, slowdown uh, on the PC sales, the inflation that we're seeing, the uh, kind of re re reduction in revenue and spend of people which are being more cautious, as you also mentioned, cryptocurrency going down and therefore uh, people not buying and people just waiting, you know, people are just thinking maybe, you know, we won't get a a fresh GPU will just wait for, you know, some of these crypto farms to crash and to buy stuff, you know, secondhand. Who knows? You know, it's been really scarcity of GPUs has been a challenge for a while. And the inflated prices are kind of putting off people from, from investing there. So that that's a kind of a perfect storm, if we can put it that way somehow. So, Tom, getting back to a topic which is closer to you, the Cisco world was shocked last week when it was announced that Todd Nightingale was leaving his post as head of enterprise networking and cloud at the end of August. News reports later revealed that the former Meraki head was moving to become the CEO of Fastly. Nightingale has been successful at steering the two disparate ships of Meraki and Cisco networking for a number of years and has been a high-profile member of the executive team. The Unix run will be folded into the mass-scale infrastructure organization headed by Jonathan Davidson. Tom, is this a good move for uh, Nightingale? I think it is. And I'll, I'll tell you why I think that's the case. So I was at Cisco Live and uh, we were doing Tech Field Day Extra and we were actually watching the keynote address. And uh, Chuck Robbins is the CEO of Cisco and he gets up there and, and the job of a CEO in the middle of their keynote address is to not rock the boat. So Chuck's a very steady person. You know, he gets up, talks about the challenges that they've been facing, talks about all the things that are going on, has his aw shucks Texan manner reads through his stuff, and then Todd Nightingale gets up. And, and Todd is um, a little more animated than Chuck. And at many points during Todd's keynote address, I honestly thought the man was going to burst into tears talking about the challenges that they've su they survived and, and how the world has changed. And I'm not saying that he's better or worse than Chuck. I'm saying he's different. And there was a passion in his voice that you could hear that I haven't heard out of someone in a really long time. And as I was watching that, my instinct, the first thought that jumped into my head was that man's going to run a company very soon, but it's not going to be Cisco because a person like that is going to get snapped up. And if this had been five years ago and John Chambers was still leading Cisco, but kind of look, eyeing toward his exit, I honestly might have put Nightingale number one on my list of potential successors. And considering that lion's den, that would have been hard. 
Um, but this is an excellent move for Todd Nightingale because he needs to shine. He needs to move into his own organization. He needs to be visible as the leader of a company. And Fastly actually has a lot of really great technologies underneath the, the hood that are uh, driving a lot of things like signal sciences and stuff like that. Um, there wasn't a whole lot more upward mobility for Todd Nightingale at Cisco as long as Chuck Robbins was there. And this is a problem that we see when you've grown executives to where they are. I mean, Todd literally did come over with the Meraki acquisition. When the Meraki founders left, he was kind of the one there holding the reins. He has kind of steered this Meraki-fication, if you want to call it that, of Cisco's technology, kind of, you know, um, summiting to what we saw this year where Cisco is effectively going to take their catalyst switches and run Meraki software on them. If you'd have told people eight years ago that that was the end goal, they would have laughed at you. They would have said the exact opposite, that Cisco is going to put iOS on Meraki devices. And here we are today with the leadership of someone like Todd Nightingale basically saying, yeah, take this catalyst switch. You can run Meraki's OS on it and manage it in Meraki's dashboard. But that almost kind of feels now like a swan song, like he got it over the finish line and now it's time to do something different. And the timing of this actually makes a whole lot of sense when you realize that this is effectively the first month of Cisco's fiscal year. So he got it done and now it's time for him to move on. Is Cisco going to suffer from this? I don't really think so, because as announced, they've already folded this business unit into mass scale infrastructure, which if you're not familiar, is the service provider business unit. So Jonathan Davidson is completing what I would consider the Voltron of Cisco, where you used to have all of these business units under John Chambers that kind of effectively fought with each other, like a fiefdom or like Sears back when Eddie Lampert ran it. And now they've slowly been combining these things back together like the Lions of Voltron. And now you've effectively got almost all of the networking division under one umbrella. But that also concentrates a lot of power under Jonathan Davidson. And so the question is, would Todd Nightingale have been a better person to run this? Objectively, I would have probably said yes. But I also think that Todd Nightingale is a better person to be running another company. So this is a good exit for him. And I think that he's going to go on to do great things in the industry. And I think that he's going to be one of those people that we look back on and say, I remember when. Um, Cisco's going to survive. But I'm curious to see who the next young lion that's going to come up to run that whole business unit is going to be. Because we've seen a lot of people who have taken on that role, such as David Geckler, move on to run other companies somewhat successfully and somewhat not. So this is going to be an interesting story to watch. All right, Max, we had one big story that I kind of wanted to touch on here a little bit. And because it's security focused, I'll go ahead and give everybody a little bit of a brief on it. And then we'll we'll kind of jump on it from there because it's Black Hat and DEF CON week. Um, so you know what that means? There's going to be a disclosure of some bugs. And the winner so far is our friends over at Intel because some security researchers found a pretty big flaw in the SGX memory encryption technology. Per a pre-briefing that was ahead of a talk that's actually happening today at Black Hat, security researchers found a flaw in the Advanced Programmable Interrupt Controller, the APIC, which is where this bug actually gets its name from, that allows them to read uninitialized memory that could contain stale data before it's cleared by the CPU. Hmm, that sounds kind of familiar. Anyone remember Spectre and Meltdown? <laughs> Except this one's a little different because this is not a side channel attack. This is not inferring the data that's in the CPU register through a bunch of electronics trickery. This is actually reading the data that's in there. 
Yeah, that's not good because it's a flaw in the CPU architecture itself. This means that attackers can uncover data quickly. How quickly are we talking about? Well, in some proof of concept tests, they were able to recover a 128-bit AES encryption key in less than two seconds with 94% accuracy. They were able to recover a 124-bit RSA key in less than a minute and a half with 74% accuracy. Yeah, I'd say that's a problem. Now, Intel is currently on the defensive, and they're saying that this flaw affects their 10th, 11th, and 12th generation processors, which includes Ice Lake and Alder Lake. But there's no notification about whether or not this includes Sapphire Rapids. You know, the processor technology that's been delayed by over 500 bugs, which we reported on last week, as a matter of fact. So let's break this down, because this actually is something that, honestly, if I was Intel, I'd probably have like an entire souffle on my face right now. So we've spent the last several years talking about how Spectre and Meltdown are these weird kind of attacks that we can protect against, but not really, because if we do, we're going to reduce the performance on the CPUs. And now researchers come along and go, well, we're just going to bypass all of the things you've done to patch Spectre and Meltdown because we're just going to go ahead and exploit the APIC to read what's in the CPU registers before it gets cleared. Now, granted, it's not a trivial attack. You are going to have to specially craft these things, and it requires a very specific load on the processor. You have to have a certain processor generation. And in the R's article that we're linking to, um, someone interviewed Signal, uh, you know, the encrypted messaging company, and asked them what kind of impact this would have on them. Signal immediately came back and said, yeah, we double-checked, and none of the CPUs that we use in our processing for our encrypted memory technology uh, are affected by this. We, we specifically have moved all of our workloads away from that. So here's the problem. This is a huge deal for people that are wanting to try to get access to encrypted messaging technologies like Signal. So I can't read a Signal message unless I'm one of the recipients of it because it's encrypted end to end, just like iMessage and just like a number of other platforms, right? Makes total sense. So if I can't attack it, in transit, where can I attack it? Well, if I can recover the encryption key from the messaging from a stale CPU register, that's a problem because that means that now I can read all of those messages. And that's something that people who would concentrate data in a certain location would be able to do, you know, like unfriendly governments. So I'm very happy that this was found. I'm not very happy that this is yet another attack on SGX because Intel has been doing a very good job of trying to convince us that doing this in-memory encryption technology is a way to prevent these kinds of anecdotal ancillary um, security leaks, except they can't get it right. Now, when you make something, when you make a, a fort, basically, or a bastion castle, people are going to attack it. It should still stand a little bit longer than it does. And... I'm really curious to see how Intel goes about doing this because actually linked in the R's article is a note from another security university researcher who's like, listen, if you would just turn off these two features, this would basically be, uh, you'd be unable to use this. Problem is, is that that's not what Intel did because they would rather put out a different patch, which could potentially reduce performance, but not disable features that they've been trying to sell for a number of years. And so in essence, what you're trying to say is, we're willing to take a hit on our performance numbers to prove that 
you need these other features, which may or may not actually be causing the problem. Now, Max, I know you're a big privacy advocate. You know, what do you think about the fact that now Intel can uh, have their their CPU registers read for stale data that could contain encryption keys? You know, uh, it, it's hard to not be kind of cynical here uh, when we're talking about those things, right? Uh, especially we thought we had seen it all with Spectre and Meltdown. I mean, the fallout of remediating these, I know the immense heck on the site it has been for all of the admins out there, uh, you know, working to patch everything and to find remediation. So the fact that we come over uh, across these things over, over and over again, I mean, we're coming to a point where uh, maybe the question is, are, does it really make sense to start, you know, uh, to, to continue building CPUs which have so many, so many, so many feature sets? Uh, the question is, do we need to move to different architectures? We're seeing that with APUs, with SmartNICs and other things where we're moving towards more kind of disaggregation in terms of who does what in the infrastructure stack. And, you know, maybe maybe the fact that we uh, try to embed everything to the CPU, and I do understand Intel's point, they want to sell and to differentiate, and to do that, you have to provide unique features, unique value, right? Uh, but, but on the other hand, if that kind of complexifies the, uh, this, the architecture and uh, that much that it creates, every iteration creates uh, tens or hundreds of bugs, security failures and so on. Maybe, maybe the industry, uh, not saying it's just Intel, maybe others have that as well, but maybe we need to kind of, you know, start looking at the blank sheet and, and say, okay, how can we do that differently? How can we reduce the attack surface? So do we kind of reduce the risk? I mean, the, the, uh, the impact of that can be, for some individuals who are mentioning Signal and other applications, that can, that can be really devastating. I mean, for some people, we're talking about life and death, right? So, I mean, it's always we're talking about a small, very tiny group of individuals. We covered that recently with Stephen Foscat when talking about the new iOS extensions for privacy, the lockdown mode. But still, I mean, it, it has an impact, right? So... It's kind of an act of balance. I don't know what you think about it, but you have millions invested on one hand, you know, projects which take uh, ages to complete, delays, and then, you know, it, it ends up like that. I mean, it's, it's not really serious. And I think that you bring up a really interesting point here because the, the Intel architecture for years has been have the chip do everything. And we've seen this like, you know, how many cores can we stick in this thing? How many cores can we dedicate to things like SSL decryption and, and all of these other things? And even Intel is being slowly forced to admit that this monolith isn't going to work because of production cycles. I mean, look at the chiplet technology that they're starting to, to incorporate, where certain sections of the CPU are being revved more or less on a different schedule than the other ones. They're effectively saying... We can't continue this pace of change. I mean, how many times have they said in recent memory that Moore's law is effectively no longer valid because, you know, we're going to hit a wall. But the problem is, is that you're still packing all of this onto a CPU die, which means when one of these problems comes out, and that's one of the challenges that we're looking at, Alder Lake and Ice Lake are affected. Nobody knows what's going on with Sapphire Rapids, but according to what most people are saying, Sapphire Rapids is using a very similar code train in the processor that could be affected by this. And they're wondering if one of the reasons why Sapphire Rapids hasn't been delayed was so that they could patch this out. But if it's using a chiplet technology to do this that was affected and that chiplet technology is still on the roadmap for future um, issues, 
you might actually see this problem crop up again. How many times have we run into situations where bugs or other things have been able to be exploited in the future because someone forgot to add a patch or there was old code remnants that were stuck in there? I mean, that happens more than you might think. And I'm sure we'll probably hear more about that at Black Hat this year. Whereas the alternative is to take an ARM processor that's really stupid. I mean, obviously, it's a CPU. It's it's a rock that we tricked into thinking by jolting it with lightning. But effectively, compared to an Intel you know, complex instruction set processor, it's effectively stupid. But that also means that there's not a whole lot of things you can do to mess it up. So using more ARM processors with a reduced instruction set that prevents these kinds of attacks from happening because you're not loading too much stuff into the CPU would appear to be a better way to get this problem resolved. Now, obviously, AMD and the ARM processors have their own little challenges that we saw back with, um, you know, when the Spectre meltdown stuff started happening. But I'm beginning to think that that if this is a big problem that Intel can't solve, this may be the end of chiplets before it even really gets started. Absolutely. And maybe as a last as a last comment, you know, there's a kind of there's a kind of ebb and flow movement, you know, in the industry where uh, we had very much disaggregated, you know, components and everything got very heavily concentrated. Now we see that it's starting to get back to disaggregated again. I was attending a presentation, a showcase, actually, I think it was Techfield Day Showcase a couple of days ago. And we we're just talking about that. We we're talking about SIGCEL how it is going to impact in the future, you know, architectures, the fact that we will get to everything disaggregated. And the question is, you know, how can we maybe achieve that with CPUs as well? What you said for the ARM CPU architecture, when you compare it with the uh, x86, the Intel particularly uh, architecture, I mean, there there is a kind of a di diametral opposition between the two, right? But maybe, maybe it's uh, the, the going simple, and being modular maybe is the way to go. Maybe with SIGCEL uh, uh, and other transports, we can overcome the limitations that we had in the past, which led to the concentration, right? I mean, the CPU and I mean, a lot of these extensions close to it because it was faster and so on. So who knows where it is headed? Yeah, that's true. Um, but I know where we're headed because we have a couple of events that are coming up that you're not going to want to miss. At the end of this month, um, Stephen Foskett is going to be doing Tech Field Extra at VMware Explorer US 2022, the event formerly known as VMworld. Um, that's going to be August 29th through the 31st, so you're going to want to check out our website to learn a little bit more about that. As for me, I'm going to be back in Silicon Valley uh, the week after, uh, or actually the week of Labor Day here in the U.S., so uh, September 7th through the 9th, we're going to be doing Networking Field Day 29. Boy, that's a jam-packed event. We've got a lot of companies that are going to be presenting. You should totally check out the website to learn who's going to be there, as well as see the delegates. Some of these folks I haven't seen in person in a number of years, and I'm really excited to have them joining us at the event. Um, Max, obviously, you're about to take a holiday, so you're going to be out for a while. But where can people go to find out a little bit more about some of the cool stuff that you've been working on? Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter, at uh, Max Mortilaro or on the Tech Unplugged uh, website, so uh, techunplugged.io slash blog. And of course, uh, you can also look me up on the Gigaon website with uh, the research we've been working on with the team. And you should totally check out the Tech Unplugged blog because Max and Ariane do a great job of breaking down some of the cool technology announcements that are coming out. And they're wonderful writers. So sometimes I will rely on them to tell me how something works if I haven't had a chance to do a little research on it because they do the research and they definitely do a great job. So I can't recommend them highly enough. 
Um, well, you know, it's it's about time for us to wrap up the rundown. But the good news is, is that it's National S'mores Day. So if you want to sample the very first recipe that was ever published in the Girl Scouts Handbook, you should totally go check out the beautiful concoction that is graham crackers, marshmallows, and chocolate bars. Um, and if you happen to live in Connecticut, you can have a s'more to celebrate National Connecticut Day as well. We are back every Wednesday of around 1230 Eastern time with the rundown uh, of the news of the week. Sometimes, you know, it'll be me and Steven. Sometimes it'll be me or Steven with a guest host like Max. Um, but we're, we're thrilled to be a part of your, your Wednesday. And we appreciate all the wonderful comments that we get from the people in the community saying that they love the rundown. They love our take on news. They love to hear what we come up with next. Um, and, uh, you can follow us on our, uh, YouTube channel at youtube.com slash gestalt IT video. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at gestalt IT use the hashtag rundown. If you want to make a comment or maybe even suggest a story, you never know when we might give you a little bit of credit in the news for uh, bringing something to our attention. Um, but we're always on the lookout for fun things to cover. Um, and we're always looking out for, you know, what day it might be. So for myself, Tom Hollingsworth, for my wonderful co-host, Max Mordiaro, who's about to, to take his leave. So, Max, thank you for jumping in at the last minute. Um, and, you know, for Stephen Foskett, who uh, is dealing with some stuff right now, uh, it's all good. Uh, you know, just sometimes you, you need to jump out and take care of that. So, Stephen, we sincerely uh, look forward to uh, hearing good news. Thank you very much for tuning into the rundown. We will see you very soon. 